Hey guys, this is Craig from the Pacific War Channel, and before I let you listen to this podcast, I just want to acknowledge this podcast was originally on my Patreon account. It is a four-part series on General Kanji Ishiwara. It has become quite popular, so I asked my patrons if it would be alright to release it on Spotify and YouTube, kind of as a teaser to entice some of you to come over to the Patreon. Over on my Patreon, there are exclusive podcasts, early access to all of my content, privileges like voting rights on the next subjects I will tackle, live hangouts, your wonderful names in the end credits of my episodes on YouTube, and a lot more. So if you really like the channel and the work I do at other places like Kings and Generals, please give my Patreon a look. But without further ado, this is part one of the General Ishiwara Kanji series. Well, hello there, and welcome to the second exclusive Patreon podcast, and I would like to thank patron Zeiser for suggesting this one. And here is the literal quote I took from when I asked for a subject to cover. This is what he had to say. An in-depth look at General Kanji Ishiwara would be interesting. The man was the architect for the Mukden incident that led to the Second Sino-Japanese War. But he was vehemently opposed to the abuse and exploitation of Japan's colonialism indulged in. His vocal condemnation of the brutality and excesses of the Imperial Japanese military foreign policy, and Tojo in particular, led to his removal. But he couldn't be executed for popularity in rank and file. Even at the trials after the war, he remained defiant, declaring that President Truman should be tried alongside the Axis war criminals for firebombing Japanese cities. He was truly a fascinating figure. And I quite agree, Kanji Ishiwara is a fascinating character, and his story has a startling impact on the Pacific War and global history as a whole. Now, by the time I am literally reading this script out to you, and yes, I write these things uh, well well in advance, although for this one it was uh, actually just a few days ago I finished it, well, I now realize it's going to be a multi-parter. Seeing that this was getting longer and longer, I decided that this first part will be limited to uh, the early days of Ishiwara up to the Mukden incident. Now, further down the road, I definitely will be finishing this one up. It'll probably take a, well, let's say at least one more episode. If not, uh, it might be a three-parter, but I'll try my best to make it a two-parter. But also stating that, I don't want to take away from the other patrons. So I will probably be putting up a poll rather soon to cover another subject in between whenever uh, the next parts come out. But anyways, with saying all of that, without further ado, enjoy part one of Kanji Ishiwara and the Mukden Incident. Kanji Ishiwara was born in Tsurioka, Yamagata Prefecture on January the 18th of 1889. He was the second son of a policeman, who was himself a descendant of a samurai family serving the Shonai Domain. The Shonai Domain and his clan had supported the Tokugawa Shogunate during the Boshin War, and as a result of their defeat. Alongside other Shogunno ally clans, they would see themselves shut off from larger governmental positions in Meiji-era Japan. Not to go too deep down the rabbit hole, but domains like Choshu and Satsuma would see the lion's share of higher positions, because they were the greatest victors of the war. 
But domains who served the opposite side, well, they would be much more cast out. Ishiwara began his army career at the military preparatory school in Sendai at the age of 13, followed up by two years at the Central Military Preparatory School in Tokyo. In 1907, he entered the military academy as a member of its 21st class. He left the academy in July of 1909 with the commission of lieutenant and an assignment as a platoon commander of an infantry regiment in Tohoku. After the annexation of Korea in 1910, his regiment was shipped over to the peninsula and he served in Chinchuan in a small garrison. After two years of occupational duty, Ishiwara returned to Tohoku and in 1915 he passed the examinations necessary to enter the Army Staff College. He held an outstanding record, graduating top of his class in November of 1918, and he would be amongst the elite ranks of the Guntogimi, receiving the Imperial Sword. Now, in 1920, he had a frustrating assignment with the Department of Military Training, and he applied for service in China and received an assignment to the Central China Garrison in Hankou. He spent a year traveling through Central China before returning back to Tokyo in 1921, where he worked as a lecturer at the Army Staff College. He sought another China assignment, but his superiors sent him instead to Europe, as they did with all their promising young officers. He went to Germany for three years, studying languages and military history. In 1925, he was now a major, 36 years of age, and he received an assignment to the faculty of the Army Staff College to lecture about the history of war. Now, from the very beginning of his character, Ishiwara proved himself a very unconventional officer. He was on the eccentric side. He was quite argumentative, and he was burdened with a lot of health problems. He had multiple kidney infections, gastrointestinal problems, tiffinitis, and other ailments that clawed out him throughout his life. You also can't forget his ancestry, which was important to the Japanese military even in the 1930s. Many of those that came from the disgraced clans had the habit of going above and beyond in terms of imperial loyalty, sort of like a way to rid themselves of the stigma of distrust that was seen in the early Meiji years. Ishiwara was a bit bizarre. He was non-conforming, quite an independent spirit, you would say. Many of his biographers point out, while he held an outstanding record in his education, this went alongside things like his utter disregard for military norms, such as dress and appearance. In his early career, he spoke out against the inequalities he saw within the military, such as what he saw as favoritism for staff college graduates. Now, such talk was quite reckless. He also read a lot about politics, religion, history, and philosophy. He seemed to have quite the restless mind. His behavior drew attention from his colleagues, many deeming him brilliant. Now, everyone in any military has to learn a bit about military history. But not all of those seek to learn it outside the required readings and such. Ishiwara, however, is one of those rare individuals who was obsessed with learning more about military history. In his youth, like many of his colleagues, he read about the Russo-Japanese War, but he took quite a critical look at it. He believed the Japanese victory was due to a large part because of luck. He thought Japan had taken the von Molka strategy of annihilation but Russia was simply too large to be dislodged from Asia with a swift stroke. 
If Russia had preserved herself better, he believed Japan would have lost, and it would only be a peculiar set of circumstances that Japan had avoided a war of endurance. Ishiwata believed if such a set of circumstances occurred again, Japanese defensive planning would need to change dramatically to base itself on the realities of modern warfare. This led him to read thoroughly about World War I in Europe, and he looked critically at the differences between a short duration versus long duration when it came to war. How prolonged conflicts eventually became total wars, where politics, economics, and social order played larger roles than just that of the military. This led him to think of categories for different types of war. As he put it, Gesenteki Senso, Decisive War, and Jizokuteki Senso, Continuous War. He viewed these two types as flowing back and forth throughout history, in a cyclical rhythm. During his time in Germany, he studied Clausewitz, Van Molke, and the works of Hans Delbruck. He was particularly taken by Hans Delbruck's Niederwerfungsstrategie, Strategy of Annihilation, The Decisive Battle, and Ermatumsstrategie, The Strategy of Exhaustion. He could see his own theories more fleshed out in such works, and he took quite a liking to them. This brought him to analyze the Napoleonic War as an archetype of the War of Annihilation, and the wars of Frederick the Great as that of a war of exhaustion. Now further on in his studies, Ishiwara became convinced, like many of his colleagues, that Japan and the United States, for reasons of power and ideology, were on a set course for war. He also concluded such a war would be a protracted one, that of a strategy of exhaustion. But how could Japan prepare for such a protracted war when her natural resources were so clearly inadequate? This led him to think more so about Asia. Ishiwara believed Asia was an entity distinctly different from the West. He held beliefs that Asia should be liberated and united. During the Xi'anai Revolution of 1911, as a young cadet in Korea, Ishiwara was quite excited by the idea China might revitalize herself. But he became disillusioned during his time in China later. In the 1920s, he dealt with bandits, warlord-era conflicts, chaos, and disorder, seeing poverty everywhere. All of this shattered his image of China progressing and reforming herself. He wrote during this time this. Looking at the situation in China, I came to harbor grave doubts as to the political capacities of the Chinese race and came to feel that, though they were a people of high cultural attainment, it was impossible for them to construct a modern state. Now, despite how disappointed he was with the political problems of China, he was likewise disgusted with how his fellow Japanese colleagues treated the Chinese. He recalled feelings of shame when he saw fellow colleagues in Hankou descending from rickshaws and tossing coins to the ground at the rickshaw men's feet. He would constantly write of how the Japanese needed to shed their racial superiority feelings, but funny enough, he would write this alongside his beliefs it was necessary for Japan to help guide nations like China to their destiny. While he may have held beliefs in racial equality between Japanese and Chinese, he certainly did not think the same of Chinese politics. 
Like the majority of his colleagues, he believed China required reform and modernization that Japan should usher in. To Ishiwara, the issue at hand was, if Japan did not help China, the West would aggressively do so and thus subjugate her further. To Ishiwara, China needed liberation. Ishiwara also linked the incoming war between Japan and the United States to play a large role in what was going to occur between China and Japan. Ishiwara, like many Japanese officers, held beliefs concerning the Kokutai. I will try to summarize exactly what the Kokutai is, but honestly, it's so unbelievably complex, and to just say, it's a, it's a cultural phenomenon. The Kokutai was a spiritual motive force that influenced the Japanese military. It can be viewed as the national character of Japan. In order to really explain what the hell I just said, you kind of have to understand how the Japanese constitution was formed during the Meiji era. Japan had a constitutional monarchy that held the Kokutai, national body or character, and Sentai, the governmental body and structure. Thus, there was, in reality, two ideologies at play. One held the traditional belief focusing on that of the emperor, and that of the official government. If I were to give you an overly confusing summary, I would tell you this. Japan is run by the emperor and the government simultaneously. This, of course, is confusing as hell, and it should be. Article 4 of the former Japanese constitution held, quote, the emperor is the head of the empire, combining in himself the right of sovereignty, uniting the executive, legislative, and judicial branches of government, although subject to the consent of the imperial diet. It's like saying you have an absolute monarch, but he will be listening and following the democratically elected people. This contradiction would actually, for a large part, lead to the Pacific War. A large issue that would emerge is that the Constitution literally said the Navy and Army were controlled by the Emperor, and not the political diet. Thus, many in the military viewed themselves as subject to the Kokutai, which, as an ideology, would evolve dramatically from the Meiji era to the Showa era. For example, what if you are a military high-ranking officer who views the political elites as nothing more than criminals, who you think are taking the emperor hostage against his will, and thus against the will of the Japanese people? Because do remember, the constitution holds that the emperor holds the right of sovereignty, not the people. It's the emperor. So he is, in fact, the people of Japan in many ways. Well, this might lead you to try and overthrow the government, to make sure the emperor was really in charge, as you think he should be. And honestly, I'm, I'm overly simplifying this. For those who actually understand the Japanese constitution and the structure in the Kokutai, I am sorry. But, you know, for the layman, I'm, I'm trying my best. Now, Ishiwara had a unique view of the Kokutai. In his early education, he wrote this about his doubt on understanding it as a principle. Even though I myself, because of my training, 
had come to have an unshakable faith in the Kokutai, I began to lack confidence that I could impart this belief to others, to the common soldier, to the civilian, to the non-Japanese. His issue was, how did the Kokutai apply outside Japan? How could its value transcend the national boundaries and interests of Japan? If a Japanese soldier was to sacrifice his life for the Kokutai, how did this take on any meaning for men of all races? How could the Kokutai's supranational value be linked to outside ideologies? Ishiwara would find answers to these questions in Nichiren and Buddhism. It seems here he was able to combine his conceptions about war, history, and national purpose. Now, Ishiwara did not come from a religious family. He dabbled a bit in Christianity, but he did not pursue it much. Shinto, likewise, did not sufficiently fulfill Ishiwara's beliefs. Nichiren Buddhism is strongly patriotic, has an apocalyptic character to it, and represents a holy mission to be the religion for all mankind, with the center of propagation being Japan. There was this kind of quasi-idea of world regeneration behind it, with Japan as the moral righteous leader. Thus, as you can imagine, the Kokutai and Nichiren Buddhism sort of fit like a glove in many ways. Utilizing Nichiren Buddhism, the Kokutai could be raised from its purely national dogma and be amplified to the entire world. Ishiwara was introduced to all of this by Tanaka Chigaku, who was part of the Kokuchukai National Pillar Society, a Nichiren nationalist organization with a headquarters in Tokyo. After attending a public meeting held by Tanaka, he quickly converted to Kokuchukai, and he would write this down in his journal. I was attracted to the Nichiren faith's view of the Kokutai. Now, one aspect of the Kokuchukai's Nichirenism that greatly appealed to Ishiwara was its competitive passages. Ishiwara would justify and attribute much of the military force Japan used on the Asian continent drawing parallels to Nichiren's ideas of drawing the sword to defend righteousness. He often quoted Nichiren's statement that the significance of the art of war appears in the wonderful law. Ishiwara became engulfed by the Nichiren doctrine and came to the belief in its prediction that there would be a quote, Zendai Mimonno Detoso, Titanic World Conflict Unprecedented in Human History. It was something like a global Armageddon. After this would come a reign of universal and eternal peace under the harmony of the wonderful law. While in Germany, Ishiwara became convinced that if Japan and the United States were destined for war, and the U.S. won that war, the Kokutai would be destroyed. He took the Trans-Siberian Railway en route back to Japan and stopped in Harbin. There he met with Nichiren believers, and he spoke to them about his idea of a, quote, final war. He stated he believed it would come through religious prediction and his military analysis. He warned everyone Japan must hasten herself for it, and that, quote, 
The final war is fast approaching. Ishiwara came back to Japan in 1925, fired up with conviction to lecture at the Army Staff College about this final war. His audience was the Army's bright and youthful officers. He taught them Frederican and Napoleonic campaigns, von Moltke and World War I, and of course his thoughts on the future conflict before them all. The Army Staff College continuously called for him to expand his lectures because they were so popular. Then in 1927, he drafted an essay titled Genzai Oyobi, Shorai Niho, no Kokubo Japan's Present and Future National Defense. Here he spoke about the inevitable war between the United States and Japan. These were quite provocative and took a hell of a lot of attention from his colleagues. Later on in April of 1931, he would brief his fellow Kwantung officers using the essay, arguing the need for decisive action on the Asian mainland. In 1928, he would have given another course on the European war, but he had come down with influenza and he was forced to take a leave of absence. As he was getting better, he was hit with a case of Typhonitis in his ear, and he had to be hospitalized for six months. It was to be one of many ailments that would grind at his health. He eventually was drawn into an elite study circle to talk about war theories led by one Major Suzuki. The group consisted of young reformist-type officers who talked about political and military issues. He carried on his work on the final war and eventually wrote, Sensoshitaiken. General Outline of the History of War, which was delivered as a lecture before the Kwangtung officers in Changchun in Manchuria on July the 4th of 1929. It would receive revisions in 1931, 1938, and it became a book of the same title after 1941. As he began lecturing using Sensoshi Taiken, he also circulated amongst an inner circle within the Kwangtung army, Kokun Tenkai, no konpon, kukusakutaru, man momondai, kaiketsuan. Plan for the solution of the Manchuria and Mongolia problem as a basic national policy to revolutionize our country's destiny. Wow, what a title. As you might guess, the plan called for occupying Manchuria in preparation for the upcoming war with America. By the way, all of his lectures and works would gain so much fame, he was asked in 1936 to adapt the materials for a text on military history for Emperor Hirohito. Now, the 1930s were quite a tense time for Japan. The Japanese leadership saw Marxism everywhere, and they believed it was withering away at their nation. Japanese liberal types were arguing the military budget was getting out of hand. Many were calling for a reduction. To Ishiwara, it was insanity. How could Japan not arm itself? Marxists preached communism would save Japan. Liberals preached true democracy would save Japan. Ishiwara and many in the army preached the Kokutai would save Japan. Ishiwara preached his final war theories and that the coming apocalypse would not see an American synthesis but a supreme victory for the Japanese Kokutai that would unify the world. Japan must be victorious, not for the sake of her own national interest, but for the salvation of the world. 
The last war in human history is approaching. Nichiren's Titanic World Conflict, unprecedented in human history. From the offset of his initial theories, Ishiwara believed the final war would be a strategy of exhaustion. But World War I and the 1920s brought technological advances such as tanks, poison gas, and of course the airplane. The airplane in particular made Ishiwara believe the defensive stalemate seen during World War I was coming to an end. Air power could deliver bomb loads past all known defenses such as naval surface units, fortresses, armies, and their automatic weapons. He believed the final war would see absolute horrors brought upon the greatest cities of the world. London, Shanghai, Paris, and even Tokyo would be wiped out within a day of the commencement of the hostilities. Ishiwara believed air bombardment would deliver victory, and he would be shockingly right about that one when you think about what happened to places like Germany and Japan at the end of World War II. Very prophetic. He believed such a war would be waged only once and, quote, we will enter an age where war will become impossible because of the ultimate development of war technology. Ishiwara argued Japan must directly or indirectly control Manchuria and to a lesser degree over parts of China. He asserted Japan had a moral obligation to the Asian continent and a special relationship to Manchuria and China. China must be stabilized for her people were threatened by turmoil corruption, and conflict. He argued Japan would be eventually obliged for the sake of peace and the welfare of the Chinese people to take a more active effort to stabilize her, particularly in Manchuria. He wrote in 1930, To save China, which has known no peace, is the mission of Japan, a mission which at the same time is the only means for the salvation of Japan itself. To accomplish this task is an urgent matter, and the interference of the United States must be eliminated. Ironically, he was advocating that in order to prepare for a conflict with the United States, Japan must take a stronger hand in Manchuria and China, which would probably force the United States to confront her. The old self-fulfilling prophecy. He advocated against the strategy of a decisive battle at sea, instead emphasizing a continental strategy. If the worst comes about and the war at sea turns against us, if proper measures have been taken, Japanese forces on the Asian mainland can be made self-sufficient and the war continued. Above all else, Manchuria was the key, alongside some parts of Mongolia and China. In 1931, he began writing about how China needed to reform, and it would be in her best interest to accept Japanese guidance to do so. He saw China as the most valuable ally to be beside Japan in the event of a war with the United States. If anything, he argued, Japan must try to not become involved in a war with China. Every effort should be made to avoid provoking such an event. Yet as he continued his writing, he began to see the diplomatic issues play out between China and Japan, and he came to the conclusion, Every attempt should be made to avoid provoking China, but in the event that it is impossible to bring about China's understanding, 
then Nanking should be swiftly attacked and North and Central China occupied. Way to go from zero to sixty. His attitudes towards Britain and Russia were quite similar. Every effort should be made to remain friendly. But in the case of war with Britain, well, Hong Kong and Malaya should be quickly occupied, or in the case of war with the USSR, predetermined objectives inside Siberia should be seized quickly. Now let's talk about Manchuria, specifically Manchuria in the late 1920s. Manchuria was in a huge tug of war between Russia, China, and Japan. Her ties to China proper were severed by years of warlordism, allowing Japan to grow a position. For Japan, the quote, Manchurian problem, as it would become known, centered on a single question. How to consolidate and expand Manchuria under Japanese influence in the face of an expanding China? Japan saw three viable methods taking control over the South Manchurian Railway, using the Guangdong Army, and, of course, simple Japanese colonists, the good old filibuster approach. Each of these three methods offered different approaches to the same problem, which, of course, would have very different outcomes. So let's take, for example, the first one, controlling the railway. It would allow quite a lot of control over southern Manchuria. The issue with this, of course, being that Japan would have to constantly fight off Chinese political efforts against controlling the same thing that they were controlling. Zhang Zoulin, the Tiger of Manchuria, and arguably the greatest of the warlords of China, held control over Manchuria, and he was firmly acting in Japanese interests. But for how long would he play ball? To the Kwangtung army members operating in and around Manchuria, the northern expedition of Chiang Kai-shek was getting out of hand and threatening Zhang Zoulin, and thus their interests as well. Anti-Japanese sentiment was only getting worse as the northern expedition climbed further north. The Kwangtung army sought more than anything to assert and retain their control over Manchuria, because it offered a buffer against the USSR. Anything that threatened that control, well, that had to be dealt with. Ultimately, it was believed by many in the Kwangtung army that Manchuria would have to be separated officially from China, and in order for this to occur, Japan would most likely need to use force. Senior officers of the Kwangtung army were invited in June of 1927 for a meeting called upon by Premier Tanaka Geichi. The purpose of the meeting was to formulate Japan's policy towards China and Manchuria. A more radical Kwangtung army group headed by Colonel Komoto Daisaku sought to eliminate Chang Tso-lin, as he was increasingly being seen as a major obstacle to Japanese ambitions in Manchuria. Well, they would do just that in 1928, when Chang Tso-lin was assassinated via a bomb placed on some train tracks, which became known as the Huanggutuan Incident. The assassination did not work out as the Kwangtung army officers thought it would. Instead of their groomed puppet, General Yang Yuting, taking up the role as leader of Manchuria, it went instead to Jiang Soulin's son, Jiang Shuliang, who, let's just say, was not too happy the Japanese had obviously just killed his father. Thus, the Kwangtung army did not assert the forceful policy that they wanted in Manchuria. They had actually made things far much worse for themselves. 
The half-hearted investigation into those responsible for killing Zhang Soulin led to the removal of Colonel Kimoto from his post. Tanaka's cabinet was toppled. The Kwangtung army were so embarrassed and angry that their stance in Manchuria was weakened. The Japanese colonists within Manchuria felt more threatened and called more so upon the Kwangtung army for protection against Chinese nationalists wishing to kick them out. The Kwangtung army was grasping at straws, trying to think of a way to sever Manchuria from China. In 1928, Ishiwara was a lieutenant colonel, and he was consulted in length by Kwangtung officers about his views on the Manchurian problem. While he had not fully hashed out his final war theory by this point, he nonetheless spoke about the fundamentals of it, arguing the necessity of taking action to control Manchuria. For the next few years, all efforts were made by the Kwangtung officers to influence policy towards Manchuria. Ishiwara's ideas were being stimulated and influencing the debate over Manchuria amongst his high-ranking colleagues. In October of 1928, Ishiwara sought and received an appointment to the Kwangtung army staff. The assignment was to be as an operations officer, and his number one backer was Colonel Kimoto Daisaku. It seemed Kumoto saw Ishiwara as a firebrand necessary to push the Manchurian policies that they wanted. When Ishiwara arrived at Port Arthur, he found the Kwangtung Army HQ in a state of confusion and demoralization. This, of course, was a large part due to the absolute clusterfuck of a failure from the bombing of Jiang Lin. The investigation into the assassination led to many shifts within the Kwangtung Army staff, many quite restrictive. Even though Kimoto's career was shattered by the Jiang Lin failure, he kept arguing to his colleagues that the Manchurian crisis had to be resolved by force. Ishiwara, it seems, agreed with this, and during the early months of 1929, he worked alongside Kimoto, planning operations against Chinese forces in the Mukden area. By spring of 1929, Kimoto was officially being kicked out. By May, he was relegated to a divisional backwater in Japan, and by June, he was completely out of the army. But this did not mean he had lost influence on the Manchurian affairs. Kimoto's replacement was Lieutenant Colonel Itagaki Seishiro, an old comrade of Ishiwara since Sendai Military Preparatory School. For the next two and a half years, Ishiwara and Itagaki worked alongside other Kwangtung army staff to solve the Manchurian problem as they saw it. By mid-1931, the idea Manchuria needed to be seized via force was now the mainstream viewpoint amongst the Kwangtung army. Ishiwara believed firmly that Japan could no longer stand idle in Manchuria because every day that went by saw little by little Japan relinquishing rights and interests in Manchuria to nationalist China, and at some point they would simply be kicked out. To, quote, quit Manchuria would be a national disaster. They would lose their buffer state, their resources, and the land for their booming population to emigrate to. Simply put, Manchuria was the steroid keeping Japan alive. She needed it to continue to grow. Ishiwara would often say, Manchuria provides Japan with breathing space. Breathing space? Where have we heard that type of talk before? Sounds an awfully lot like Lebensraum. To the military heads in Tokyo, Ishiwara would often assert Manchuria had to be seized by force, 
because of the threat of the USSR and communism as a whole. If there was any way to scare the high command of the Japanese army, just mention communism, like this. In view of the traditional Russian policy in that area, once the Soviets advanced into Manchuria, it would become a base for the communization of Asia. Not only would the internal stability of Manchuria become impossible to maintain, but Japan would be unable to maintain its own national defense, and China's defenses, too, would become imperialized. The Army HQ in Tokyo likewise agreed Manchuria was the vital defensive line against the USSR. But unlike the Kwangtung Army, who sought all of Manchuria, the heads in Tokyo just sought to absorb southern Manchuria via the Southern Manchurian Railway and did not seek anything north of it. Ishiwata, however, assumed the only way Japan could prevent the USSR from placing pressure on southern Manchuria was no less than Japan having to occupy northern Manchuria and even further north towards the Amur River, so Japan could control the mountain ranges flanking western and eastern frontiers of northern Manchuria. Once Japan controlled northern Manchuria, Ishiwata stated in 1931, With the solution of our defense problems in the north, we would then be free to play in advance in any direction, to China proper, for example, or even to Southeast Asia. Ishiwara took all of this a step further. After Manchuria was conquered, Japan would have to somehow administer and pacify the peoples of it. Ishiwara argued the stability of Manchuria would be developed through the special talents of various races living there. The Chinese would develop the small businesses in the region. The Koreans could use their paddy farming knowledge, etc. These racial ideas would contribute to the development of Manchukuo and the Greater East Asia Co-Prosperity Sphere propaganda. But above all else, Manchuria would serve the interests of Japan, many of which would be exploitative and economic in nature. By early 1930, Ishiwara and Itagaki worked out a plan using the same strategy used during the Russo-Japanese War, a surprise night attack. The Kwangtung army would assault the Liaoning area, hitting important Chinese garrisons. The plans had to be meticulous as the Kwangtung army were, well, severely smaller than most of the Manchurian forces led by Jiang Shuliang. Around Mukden alone, Jiang Shuliang held 20,000 men well-equipped with aircraft and tanks. Throughout all of Manchuria, if a war arose, Jiang Shuliang could assemble roughly 250,000 troops to bear down on any enemy. The Kwangtung army, meanwhile, could muster 10,000 men, which were basically garrison units around the railway. They did not have significant aircraft nor mechanized forces at hand, and they were pretty poorly equipped to boot. Ishiwara's answer to the disparity in forces called for the use of intelligence and rigorous training. He sought to perfect specific assault techniques so that when conflict broke out, the Japanese would use lightning speed and effective concentration of force to overwhelm the Chinese. The plan overall was remarkably simplistic, wagering everything on dealing a crushing blow at the center of Jiang Shuliang's military power base at the Peitaiying barracks at Mukden. If this fell, he predicted the enemy's morale would break, 
giving the Kwangtung army the necessary military and psychological momentum to subdue the surrounding areas. If the USSR got involved, well, the plan would go to utter shit. He didn't really plan for that one. One important variable Ishiwada highlighted was the necessity to pull off the operation before any attempt was made to restructure the domestic order in Japan. Ishiwada knew his arguments and those of his colleagues would influence the heads in Tokyo, and they had to act before they did anything. However, the heads at Tokyo and the Kwangtung army held very different perspectives on when to act. In June of 1931, the Central Army HQ stated in its general outline of a solution to the Manchurian problem this. We must defer the question of military action for a whole year. During this time, the foreign ministry will attempt to dampen anti-Japanese activities in Manchuria through negotiations with the government of Nanking. In the meantime, the government will launch an information campaign to try and drive acquiescence at home and abroad for military action. Ishiwara, as you can imagine, was quite bitter about the idea of prolonging for a year, and he argued the international environment meant they must strike immediately. He pointed out the Soviet five-year plan was still in mid-course. The United States, Britain, and France had yet to overcome their financial crisis, and they could only offer limited resistance in the Far East. And most obviously, the nationalist regime in China was still busy in its unification efforts south of the Great Wall. All of this would change, and change quite soon. If they waited a year, all of this would probably change for the worse. The time was now or never to Ishiwara. In July of 1931, Ishiwara and Itagaki organized a final major staff reconnaissance, designed to get the newest Kwangtung officers up to date with Northern Manchuria. To cover for what they were doing, they told High Command it was merely a survey against the USSR. But it was, of course, to actually investigate the Chinese power in Northern Manchuria. On their return trip, the party heard of a disappearance, though of one Kwangtung staff officer, Captain Nakamura Shintaro. Ishiwara and the others found out when they reached Port Arthur, and then a rumor spread that Captain Nakamura had been killed by Japanese soldiers under, quote, mysterious circumstances. Now, over the past few months, there had been violent riots, murders, work strikes, and other incidents occurring in Manchuria. The Nakamura affair flared all of these tensions up. Seeing the paint on the wall, Chinese and Japanese foreign ministries tried to negotiate the issue, but those at the Central Army HQ, like Nagata Tetsuzan, were sympathetic to the impatience of their Kwangtung colleagues, feeling compelled to aid them. For Ishiwara, the issue was clear, as he wrote... The Nakamura incident adds just one more issue to the others. What the army should do now is to ignore the foreign ministry and solve the problem by taking matters into its own hands. And that is just what they did. The Kwangtung officers took their forces outside the railway zone, which they had been restricted to and without waiting for approval from Itagaki, who was in Japan at the time, 
initiated the steps to dispatch an armored train and a mixed regiment of infantry and artillery forces to go to Mukden to get the Chinese military to help investigate the Nakamura disappearance. Tokyo got word of this and quickly tried to dispatch a telegram to stop their departure from the railway, and to not use the Nakamura incident as a way of using force to solve the Manchurian problem. For Ishiwara, this was the last straw. On August the 20th, he sent a message to Nagata condemning the current diplomatic situation and that negotiations were a utter waste of time. There is no way to settle the matter except by placing it in the hands of the army. If Central Army Headquarters finds it so difficult to trust its field personnel, then it had better replace them with representatives more suitable to the conditions it imagines exist in Manchuria. Ishiwara doubled down and pushed for a plot to provoke military conflict outside of Mukden. As he wrote in almost a Masonic Nichiren conviction, I will be the pillar of Japan. I will be the eyes of Japan. I will be the great vessel of Japan. Gogekukucho, ruling from below, is a Japanese historical term referring to when subordinates defy or manipulate their superiors. Ishiwara and his like-minded close colleagues were about to perform Gikukukujo. On September the 18th, 1931, a bomb was planted by the Kwangtung Army on the tracks of the South Manchurian Railway at Luziaokao, and it exploded. Kwangtung Army troops, under the guise the bomb was a Chinese terrorist attack, moved swiftly to overrun the Peitaying Barracks. Ishiwara's plot had finally unfolded, and war was coming to the east. So that was part one, and uh, again, thank you to Sizer for recommending this as a subject. Of course, I want to finish the story of Ishiwara, as it goes on much longer than this. He's a fascinating figure. But it obviously is going to be, in my mind, a three-parter. And I thought to make the first part end at the Mukden incident was a good way to do it. Thank all of you who are listening, and, uh, you know, please, tell all of your friends who are interested in such things about the Patreon so that we can build this up further. The more patrons I get, the more I can dedicate time to this, because as all of you know, I write two podcasts for Kings and Generals per week on top of my own channel, and, uh, well, actually on top of even that, Kings and Generals has a tendency of asking me to write scripts now and then, I... Even for Wizards and Warriors, if you know about that channel, I write for there uh, probably once a month at least. So, uh, yeah, I'm not kidding when I say it's like I have very limited time. And I, I do have a 9 to 5 job during all of this. But rest assured, I want to make sure that I get exclusive content and other goodies to you guys over on the Patreon. So sit tight because I hope things are going to grow and grow and grow, baby.